0: you are basically, deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence. Hi everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike Podcast. This is episode number 8 and I'm your host Mike. So thank you for tuning in. Now this is an unscheduled episode because I originally had another episode that was going to be for number 8. That was an interview with the great Monica Perez. I had a fantastic interview with her. In fact, it's one of the best interviews I think I've done thus far and I was really excited to share that. But then of course we had the coronation and I've been talking a lot about the coronation in the last year or so because I think this really plays into the agenda that is going on. Also, there was some big astrological symbolism that was around this, astrological events that were tied into this. And, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, no, I need to do an episode specifically on this because I'm somebody who understands symbolism a lot. I've got a really good sense for it. And there was so much involved with this recent ceremony and it is all highly relevant to this agenda that's now taking place to try and drive us all into this new world order, particularly involving the new world religion which was a part of this ceremony left right and center it was absolutely everywhere now some people may not be aware that prince charles as he used to be king charles now has been argued to have been the antichrist for a long long time and there's so many reasons for that which we're going to get into in part one so in part one we're going to be looking at the historical evidence all the symbology that has existed around charles ever since his birth up until the coronation now of course The timing is absolutely perfect for King Charles to become king at this moment because we are just at the start of this Great Reset Agenda 2030 is on the horizon and we're going through this period of profound change so that he, the man who announced the Great Reset, the man who is front and centre in the environmental movement, pushing towards this Gaia worship, that he is the one that becomes the most powerful king on planet Earth at this time. Well... I don't think that's a coincidence. And I guess the point of part one is to discuss whether he was meant to be here now in the role that he is in. And you can decide yourself whether you think he is or isn't the Antichrist. But like I said, I don't think that's the main purpose of the episode is to decide whether he is or isn't. It's to look at this in its symbolic realm and then decide for ourselves if this is significant. So just a disclaimer that I'm not claiming in this episode that Charles is or is not the Antichrist. What I am going to do is to explore all of the symbolism around him. And like I said, part one, we're going to take that historic look and we're going to look at that in line with scripture. And then in part two, I do a deep dive analysis of the recent coronation. And I I think I might be the first person to do this kind of podcast where I link the two. And that analysis in the second part, well, I think... That part is really going to bring it all together because we're going to go deep into the symbolism of this ceremony and there's so much there and it all ties right in to this agenda to take us all not just to a one world government but as you're going to find out a one world religion where at some point some avatar, some new saviour figure is going to come forward and claim to be the reincarnation of either Christ or potentially all of the different avatars together. So this one is going to help you prepare yourself psychologically for what might be coming next. And like I said, as we go into that ceremony, there was so much deeply encoded into that ceremony that I'm going to draw out and then I'm going to tie it into some different quotes, some different previous books and ideas that were put forth predicting this exact thing that we are living through now happening so members you're going to take an awful lot from that if you want to listen to part two having heard part one then please head over to parallelmite.com and join us it'd be fantastic to have you there but i'm going to leave it there for the introduction because like i said this is a huge episode i put an awful lot of research into this one and i think you're going to absolutely love it so without further ado let's get on with the show thank you for listening and of course i will see you in the next one Okay everybody, let's get started with part one where we're going to be exploring Prince Charles or King Charles as he now is as being the Antichrist. And there's been an awful lot of work done on this in the past. We're going to look at some books from Tim Cohen who wrote the book The Antichrist and a Cup of Tea where he laid out this kind of historical perspective. I'm going to be drawing on that because there's some really important elements but I'm going to be adding a lot to it as well. Because rather than just look at King Charles as being the supposed Antichrist, what I really want to do in today's episode is to tie it together with what is happening right now, this push towards this one world order and particularly why I think Charles is almost definitely, he certainly is, going to be somebody who brings together the religions. So let's get started. So why is the Antichrist so important? Why is that so important to all of this that's happening in the world right now? I'm going to begin with a quote here. The Antichrist and his denials of God's eternal truth are explicitly mentioned just four times in the Bible, in only two epistles, 1 John and John 7. Nevertheless, the biblical identity of the coming Antichrist is a subject that has fascinated both Christians and non Christians alike for nearly two millennia. Unfortunately, This fascination has often led to unwarranted speculation. The Antichrist, when he takes his role, will not be easy to spot. In fact, apart from the biblical criteria, he will be all but impossible to recognise. To most, he will not be an obviously evil man. At least, not initially. Rather, he will live up to the dual meaning of the prefix anti- In his New Testament designation, he will be against the real Christ while at the same time setting himself in his place. To set himself in the Messiah's place, the anti-Messiah must ultimately be able to convince the unregenerative world that he is the Messiah for all peoples and all religions. So that quote really encapsulates what I want to get across in today's episode when we're looking at all this symbolism, when we're looking at all of this deep encoding of myth and theology, that what the Antichrist is going to try and do is to become the Messiah for all peoples and all religions. Now this is something that has been discussed Time and time again throughout history, but particularly over the early part of the 1900s. Back then, society was absolutely filled with esotericism, occultism. You know, this was absolutely everywhere. That's why you know the names of people like Anton LaVey, Alistair Crowley. Alice Bailey. All of these people were deeply tied in with the elites, and the elites were openly practicing esotericism and occultism. And of course, the reason why they were doing all that openly is because society was really a two-tier society. You had all of the people at the bottom, the workers, and then you had all of the elites. And nobody at the bottom knew what was happening at the top. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have access to decent libraries. So really... We know about this purely because history has opened the door to what was happening in the past. We can look back now and find all this out. But, of course, in the modern era, it's had to go underground. And the reason for that is because we have access to information. So they've had to go back underground. But at the first part of the 1900s, this stuff was written about. There was tons of books on esotericism and the coming of the Christ. And a key book that I wanted to mention is The Reappearance of Christ by Alice Bailey. Now, Alice Bailey talks extensively in her book. She was an esotericist. She was part of the Theosophical Society, which was, of course, this kind of New Age-type religion that drew heavily on esotericism. It had elements of Freemasonry in there. And she drew on that, and she spoke extensively about the new messiah. Now, of course, that quote that I just gave you talks about how they're going to try and put upon us a new messiah. But in her book, back in 1946, this reappearance... Of Christ Book or reappearance of the Antichrist as I like to call it, because that is exactly what she is gearing people up for in this book. And I'm going to be doing an episode all about this book with my good friend PJ Byes, who is also somebody who's very interested in theology. So we'll talk about it in more depth in the future, but I'm going to be referring to it in today's episode for obvious reasons. Now, in this book she talked, she explicitly outlines how the United Nations and other global institutions are paving the way... For the reappearance of Christ. Which will lead to the forming of a one world religion. Now she was all for this. She's an occultist. She wasn't warning people about the coming of an antichrist. She was telling them to get ready for the reappearance of Christ. And she specifically mentions how United Nations. And other global institutions. Which of course we've got the WHO, WEF, the IMF. They they didn't exist back when she wrote the book. But the United Nations did. And she actually worked alongside the United Nations. So she would know. She would know. She was there writing this book to convince the world of the coming Antichrist being the real Christ. So, you know, she was a theosophist, like I said, and her husband was a 32 degree Mason, a Freemason called Foster Bailey. And they started this institution called the World Goodwill. They also started the Lucis trust or Lucifer trust as it used to be called, and the Lucis trust still exists. I actually spoke about this in a recent interview with Hervay Morich. He mentioned, mentioned the Lucis trust. So this is who started. This idea of this reappearance of Christ. It's somebody who was deeply enmeshed with the system. And I think what we're seeing now is the unrolling of that exact agenda. Well, it's been unrolling ever since these books were created, but what they did was they told us almost a hundred years ago what was gonna come. And of course, they've been working away to it ever since. And what we've seen just recently with this coronation, to me, I think that marks the Real opening ceremony, let's say, of this one world religion. That was really to me a key symbolic ceremony, and I think things are going to escalate very quickly from here. So, like I said, the Baileys were not using this world goodwill to prepare the world for the coming Jesus Christ, but for this new age cosmic Christ, which would unite all religions and all countries. So, this is another example of how global politics are really being used. For the hidden agenda of uniting everything under a one-world totalitarian dicta- dictatorship. Now, in the Bible, of course, the Antichrist is laid out in very specific terms. And that's what we're going to be exploring in part one. We're going to be looking to see if King Charles or Prince Charles, as he used to be, throughout his life has had these things attached to him, if he's met the criteria, so to speak. Now, the number 666 is one which everybody knows. Everyone knows that the coming Antichrist will have the number 666 attached to him. This is something that is undoubtedly true of Charles, and we're going to find that out as we go along through today's episode. And you've got to remember that the number 666, how you get to that is using gematria. And gematria is something that has been used throughout history, but it's really important to understand that the Hebrews also used it. And that's simply where you ascribe numerical values to letters. And it's used in occultism, it's used in magic, and it was also used in ancient Israel. It's something that is still used today. Now, a lot of people butcher this to try and make things fit their predetermined agenda. So it's important that if we're looking at this number 666 in relation to Prince Charles that we're doing it in a way that would have been used back in ancient Israel so that we're not butchering it just to make it fit our uh, pre-existing notion that he might be the Antichrist. Another thing that we get in the Bible is the public facing persona of the Antichrist. He is described so we have an idea of what he will be like. Now of course things can change And one thing that the Bible makes clear is that the Antichrist actually exists already and then Satan almost embodies this form, as a human form or a man, as the Antichrist. So what you could have is somebody that changes very quickly, is my point, that the person themselves perhaps doesn't even know they are the Antichrist until that actually happens. So I just think it's worth pointing that out. Now one other thing that I will point out just before we go any further is that throughout history there has been many, many people that have been prophesized to have been the Antichrist. So this is something that people might think, oh well we've heard all this before and it's true. It's true, we have heard it before. There was so many people throughout history who were talking people like Hitler, Otto von Bismarck, Nero, Maurice Strong of the... WEF and Club of Rome, Al Gore, Bill Gates, Roosevelt, Mussolini, John F. Kennedy. So many people have been prophesied to have been the Antichrist. However, however, none of them actually fit the bill when it came to scripture. And that's why it's so important in part one that we look at the symbolism to actually discern whether there is a scriptural basis to say that he was chosen to be the one who is going to become the Antichrist, or in the very least, bring in the Antichrist. So that's what we're going to look at in part one. Now it's important also to understand, Charles has always seen himself as somewhat of a saviour character. So it's not just that he's been set up by others, he has always proclaimed himself as somebody who is here to save the planet. He's here to enact great things, to use his power to save humanity even. And I guess what I'm getting at is even in a general sense, even in the most general sense, there's lots of evidence that he himself sees himself in this almost, let's say, spiritual-esque light, that he is here to enact a duty. And, you know, there's lots of other circumstantial evidence. For example, his friend Jonathan Dimbleby, who's done a lot of interviews with Charles, over his life, he's one of the only people to have interviewed him, I think it's something like 15, 20 times now, he says about Charles, it is only the very unwise who dismiss him as an anachronism. The prince is a man for all seasons and a man for none. A man for his time, but not of his time. A man who rages at the folly of the world, yet he stands outside the age in which he lives. If there is always lingering about him an air of sadness, it springs in part from a sense of the sorrows which he believes the human race is storing up for itself. Mankind, the prince asserts, faces what could be a final settlement. The prince is a leader of men, a potent force for good and for change. Well, it certainly sounds very biblical, doesn't it? He even says that the prince asserts that mankind is moving towards what could be a final settlement. Just think about the terminology there, a final settlement. That goes back to spiritual debt. You know, a settlement that we have to be... Remember, I guess the final settlement for Christians is where Christ died on the cross. Christ died on the cross and all sins were forgiven because of that. Christ did it for us. So the debt was repaid. The debt to God was repaid by Christ's death. But to say that there will be a final settlement beyond that suggests of course this is an antichrist statement and that final settlement well what would that be i imagine that would be some kind of global depopulation event where many people perish now a few of the things that i would add to this is the winged statue in the amazon so in 2002 there was a winged statue created for prince charles in the amazon it was a small one but then they asked prince charles specifically it was created by a local man And, of course, we always have to question whether the official narrative on how these things happen is true. I don't think Prince Charles is going to create a winged statue of himself in the Amazon publicly and say, Oh, yes, that's exactly what I did. Because no one would want to admit to that. He has to come across as somebody who is self-effacing and modest. But anyhow, the story is a winged statue of him was made in the Amazon and it was entitled Charles, Saviour of the World. Now, they wanted to do a life-size, a life-size statue, the original one was a small one, and they had to get official permission from Charles himself, and of course, he said yes. Now, I don't know if that statue was ever made, but it's certainly something that is quite biblical, there was angel wings, now is that the wings of an angel from God that is positive, or is it negative, is it an antichrist, is it the Lucifer who fall from heaven? Well, that's for us to decide. Of course, we know recently he has asked for the Terra Carta. The Terra Carta is essentially giving the rights that man used to have to nature. So it's putting nature above man. Now, that's going to be absolutely critical in part two when we look at Gaia worship, but it's going to come to the fore again and again in part one. Very importantly, he was the man who announced the Great Reset. Before the book was ever released, it was. King Charles, or Prince Charles as he was back then, who was chosen, he was the chosen one to announce the Great Reset. Now, the Great Reset, of course, is just the frontrunner to one world government and one world religion. That's what it's about. It's the complete and total transformation of the world using existential crisis. So he's the leading figurehead in all of that. He's the leading figurehead in the environmental movement, which again is about existential crisis needing one world solutions. I guess what we're getting at here is he certainly fits the bill in terms of his role. So we're going to discuss more about this in part two when it comes to the ceremony. Okay, so I've got another quote for you all now. And this is from a book by David Hunt called Global Peace and the Rise of the Antichrist. Somewhere at this very moment, the Antichrist is almost certainly alive, biding his time, awaiting his cue. Already a mature man, he is probably active in politics perhaps even an admired world leader. He could be of great wealth and behind-the-scenes influence or a sports hero. Somewhere, he is being meticulously groomed. Even so, benevolence, prudence, integrity, and principle mark his circumspect public behaviour. Certainly, he seems no more evil than the accepted norm in today's amoral society. It may be... That to this point in his life, he is still convinced that his motives are altogether pure and unselfish. The Antichrist is so driven by his dream to rule, yes, perhaps in his own eyes, to save the world, that he will pay any price, even satanic possession, to make his mark in history. But Hollywood caricatures play into the hands of the real Antichrist, since no suspicion will rest upon this one whose admirable qualities so well conceal his dark designs. He will oppose Christ while pretending to be Christ. In fact, he will be the closest counterfeit of Christ that Satan can produce. Completely deceived by this brazen masquerade, the world will hail him as the Deliverer. And right there is where the plot thickens. If the Antichrist will indeed pretend to be the Christ, then his followers must be Christians. The world must be primed both religiously and politically to embrace the Antichrist when he suddenly rises to power. If Christianity is to be the official world religion, which must be the case if the Antichrist claims to be the Christ, this is something that I dispute, not necessarily does it have to be that, then it must become broad enough to accommodate all of the world's faith. Now that is the key part, and in part two, you will understand exactly why that is. As for the political climate, the world must be united in the twin causes of global peace and ecological rescue when this man appears. Global peace an ecological rescue when this man appears. Now, this was written in 1990. So, I guess what I'm getting at here is that this goes back a long way. People were predicting exactly what is happening now a long way, and they were predicting that a man would come forward who would be front and centre in the environmental movement, in the global institutions, but it would also be a man of great power, great wealth, and somebody who saw himself as somewhat of a saviour. That would be the man who was primed. Now, that man would also have been groomed throughout his life to have been that person at this specific time right now. So remember, this goes back a long way. That quote that I just read you was 1990, but we know the Club of Rome were planning this back in the 1960s, the WEF, the limits to growth. Alison Bailey was writing about this back in the 1920s, and she was involved with the United Nations. Before the building blocks were being put into place with the royal societies, remember that as well, this has been going on a long, long way. So it's important to understand there's a clear continuum over the past 100 years. This has always been the plan. These international institutions, the environmental crises, the falling away from God, and the replacement of Jesus Christ with a new avatar. Of course, i have had to corrupt the minds of men and women, destroy morality, destroy relationships between the sexes and divide society along every which line possible to get us to this broken state where we can be manipulated into accepting what is about to come next. And like I said, this goes back to Alice Bailey and the mystery traditions and their agenda to bring in this one world religion. Okay, and one final quote before we move on to the next section is Satan's goal is to pervert the conscience to such an extent that his lie is embraced as God's truth. Far from desiring to destroy all religions, Satan seeks to be the leader of a false religion whose adherents unknowingly worship him. And of course, that false religion, as we have seen, must be a perverted form of Christianity. Okay, so in case no one has been awake the last few years, Satanism has, of course, exploded. It has gone mainstream and most people have no idea that they are unknowingly worshipping Satan already. So what I want to get across is that people are already there. That is happening with the LGBTQI plus agenda, you know, over the last 30 years, but particularly over the past decade, and especially since 2020, something big changed there. You know, that was a huge event and that changed things. Things have gone much, much quicker since then. So this ritualistic kind of Satanism is not what I'm talking about. Not the things that people practice behind closed doors. I'm talking about this open... Satanism that is happening in the lives of everyday people where they are actually harming children. They're harming children, which is what Satan wants to do. They are promoting things that will hurt children, that will even end the life of children, of course, the injections. How many people took their children to get injected and those children went on to die? That's a form of child sacrifice, but the people are doing it unknowingly. If they knew what they were doing was actually satanistic, they would be disgusted by it. But of course, it's not delivered that way. It's delivered under ideology. Now, the real Satanists, of course, know what they're doing. But the trick here is to get people to become satanic whilst believing that they are doing something moral and good, whilst believing that they are serving whoever they see as their God. Could be Christ, maybe they don't practice, but they all have, we all in our heart, deep down, have some kind of affinity for god because we come from god so people all have that and they all like to think that they're doing something moral but like i said it's mainstream now since covid 666 the lgbtq plus agenda and of course in the media hollywood music and fashion we saw the balenciaga debacle recently satanism is mainstream but people don't know that that is what they're consuming listening to watching and enacting in their personal lives also So the Antichrist won't even pretend to be Jesus in many ways. It could be just somebody that says they have this kind of Christ spirit. And that's exactly what Alice Bailey talks about. She talks about this idea of a Christ consciousness, the coming together of all religions under a returning saviour. Now, personally, I don't think this is going to be straightforward at all. It's not going to be as straightforward as people like to think. It's going to be very complex. There will be a massive trick pulled on the populace so it could be a massive crisis and all these kind of seemingly unrelated events are happening all across the world and at the end of all of this period of turmoil and chaos where all of this crisis is happening somebody will seemingly fall into a role where they now have to assume some kind of leadership position and everyone will think that it happened completely from the ground up and organically there was no string pulling at all and that's how it has to happen to deceive everyone at once you know it has to happen that way so that Buddhists and Christians and Jews and even pagans that they might all see this person as somebody who represents peace again that's going to bring us all together So all of these disputing world religions will then become unified and this person will be seen as a spiritual master, somebody of intrigue. And it's not inconceivable that at some point in his ascent to power, he declares himself as having Christ consciousness or some kind of supernatural ability. So I think that's how it's going to work, but it'll be very, very complex. Now, I've got a fantastic quote here from a book by Gary H. Carr. And I, I'm i well aware that we haven't even got to Prince Charles yet, but I need to give you this foreknowledge so that you can understand when we actually talk about the symbolism and the ceremony that just took place, you need to have this foreknowledge to understand what was happening. And like I said, this goes back hundreds of years, and I'm giving you quotes specifically from books that were released a long, long time ago, we're talking 50 years or 100 years, so that you can see that continuum and that you can understand the agenda that was in play all along. That's absolutely critical. Okay, so here's a quote from the book, on route to global occupation, and this was again written in the early 90s. Pantheists will automatically support the concept of a one world government since global unity is essential to the proper flow of the God force. Humanity will then presumably take a quantum leap to a higher level of spiritual existence. Now, I'll just interject there for a moment. That totally says to me transhumanism and AI which is exactly where they're taking us once they have these devices in people they will be able to create those mystical experiences in a much more thorough way so I just wanted to add that in because this transhuman element is absolutely key that could be the thing that enables people to start feeling these spiritual uh, ideas and thoughts and emotions once more that could be used as part of this So when he talks about humanity taking a quantum leap to a high level of mystical existence, that could be a trick. That could be part of this transhuman agenda. People could have things injected into them. A new world order will be born. Pantheism is Satan's religion. A new-ager who has embraced pantheism may, while in a trance, encounter a spirit which approaches under the guise of being a more highly evolved being or ascended master. Those in the fields of philosophy and psychology who have delved into the occult, such as Carl Jung, have had similar experiences, only they refer to these beings as archetypal images or ideal forms. Strict humanists, on the other hand, who do not believe in the existence of a spirit realm are more commonly approached by beings posing as extraterrestrials. Through willing and naive vessels who practice occult meditation, Satan is able to orchestrate his worldwide drive for a new world order. Using secret occult hierarchies, he has systematically advanced his plans. Tens of thousands of New Ages will appear on the world scene demanding that a one world government be established to deal with the existing global problems and to prevent any future catastrophes the international media will give full coverage. Well, again, this is all happening right now. The young people are all on board. They've all been whipped into a frenzy and psychologically captured. So when you see all these protests for ending fossil fuels, Just Stop Oil, the LGBTQI agenda, their minds have been moulded and they are now all attached to the strings of whoever is running the show. And if that's Satan, then they will be the first to jump on board with any one world religion. The most convincing arguments will have to do with the environment, of course. Global debt, well, that one's coming. That one's coming with the financial crisis. World poverty and the prevention of war. And of course, if they start a war, a third world war, and we have periods of mass life loss, devastation, famine, disease, then everyone will be at that stage where they are primed to accept anybody who tells them they're going to solve this problem. Any saviour, they will be primed for it. The new world order will appear to come from the bottom up as something that the people of the world want. It will come in the name of democracy. The Antichrist will come to reside over an empowered United Nations. Remember what Alice Bailey said? Remember she worked with the United Nations? Or perhaps a newly created global authority. A world constitution will be proposed and a democratic world parliament will be created. Well, citizens will believe that they have a say in matters, not realizing that occult-based secret societies are really the ones in control. Sovereign nations would in essence cease to exist. A single global economic system would be established. Any real authority would now rest with an international an international body controlled by Satan himself. Well, all of those things are exactly where we are today. What is it that Klaus Schwab himself said after COVID? Global problems need global solutions. That is the rallying cry of today. And now we've got the WHO pandemic treaty saying that in the next pandemic, they will take control over the world's healthcare and they will be able to decide if nations need to lock down. That's one world government. We're already there. The nations of the world are already in that phase of the story where they're handing over their sovereignty to these international institutions. Now, this, of course, has been going on a long time, but COVID was that big event that they could then say, oh, look, we all have to come together, we all have to work together, and what we need is a one-world solution to these global problems. Global problems need global solutions. That is exactly what they're telling us right now. So there's this going to be, there's going to be this all-out occult-based one-world government, and this could potentially happen after World War III. If they need to go there, or if they want to go there, we will see the war, and then they will do this because people, like I said, will be extremely fatigued. Okay, now let's go on to the symbolism around Charles. I think I've done enough on the setup part to help you understand that this agenda has been in play a long time and this was always the goal and therefore they always needed somebody who could usher in the One World Religion phase of it and it would have to come from their elites and it would have to be somebody that could tick many boxes. So it may be that they had many candidates and they were grooming many people and eventually one became the most obvious and most likely choice. So we're gonna begin with the number 666. Now, this one's very obvious, the number 666, so we should be able to find that with this person attached to him. And it's worth understanding that all of these globalist institutions, all of the mainstream media companies that do their bidding, they encode 666 absolutely Sorry, 666 absolutely everywhere. And of course, it goes without saying that the logos for people like the WEF, they've got 666 encoded in their logo, the logo for Walt Disney, the logo for Google, Monster Energy Drinks. It's absolutely everywhere. So now we're going to go deeper into this one in relation to Charles. And I've got a quote from Tim Cohen's book, Antichrist and a Cup of Tea. Unlike English, ancient Hebrew and Greek did not use Arabic or Roman numerals to represent numbers. Instead, the characters of the respective alphabets were themselves used. The numbers historically applied to the Hebrew character set, which actually and today, they largely occult Kabbalah, are today called Kabbalik. With these numbers in mind, recall that the saints are told. Here is wisdom. Let him who hath understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Revelations thirteen eight. Despite arguments to the contrary, there is no compelling reason biblically or otherwise to believe that a correct identification of the Antichrist through a proper calculation of his name, as spoken of in Revelations, cannot precede the start. Of the tribulation period. In fact, if Prince Charles, now King Charles, is the Antichrist, then this has already been accomplished. The title given to Charles, Prince Charles of Wales, which is the Prince's common name and title, in the same form, for example, as Messiah Jesus of Nazareth. Unlike a manipulated or even contrived name or title such as Pope Caesar of Rome, the prince's real-life title not only calculates to 666666 666, using the Kabbalic numbers, but it does so in more than one language. It does so in English also. Now, of course, now Charles has a new title because he is king, but that is not the point here. That doesn't actually change this, that he was given that title... Prince Charles of Wales, that was his official title, and that title amounted in Kabbalic to 666. So, of course, when he transitions from prince to king, that could mean, that could be symbolic that he has now become that which he was destined to be, as we will talk about further when we look at the heraldry on his actual shield. So we know that numerology and gemantria, for example, is absolutely key. We see numerical encoding everywhere for all of these global false flag events. There is always numerology and gemantria attached to it. So it's very important to them. So therefore, we should see in the Antichrist, if that is Charles, we should see 666 in his name and in his life repeating again and again. And of course, like I just said, his title, Prince Charles of Wales had 666 encoded within it. Now, of course, what makes that really important is, like I said, it's using the actual system of Gematria that would have been used back when the New Testament was written. But what really stands out here particularly is that it not only works with the system that would have been used back then, it also adds up to the same in Gematria using English. So to have it in two languages means that the second one almost certainly had to be chosen, his title had to be chosen, he had to be given that specific name for it to work. So that would mean that the people who chose that title were prophesizing or trying to imbue within him that number. They wanted to encode that into his life from the very beginning. They chose that name specifically, otherwise it would be such a rare coincidence. And it would be something that we never saw again. If it was a coincidence, the 666 would then cease. So you could say, okay, well, it was in his name, but we never saw it again. There was no other symbolism attached. There was no other criteria met. But that simply is not the case. So I'm going to tell you about two more extremely important encodings of 666 relating to Charles that we must look at. The first is a highly significant moment, which is when Charles announced the Great Reset. Like I said, he was the person. He was the man they chose. He was the forebearer of the Great Reset. That in itself is highly symbolic of an Antichrist type figure. But here's where it gets really interesting. When he did that, he stood before a very well designed logo. And this logo was based on one of his own signals which is the three feather sign which was attached to him as Prince of Wales and it has three ostrich feathers so this is one of his symbols but it was designed and stylized specifically for this event. Now the way they did this was rather than use the three feathers which would be the normal thing to do. You'd just take the feather design. They actually redesigned the feathers with lines. So they created them out of lines and they did one coming out of his left shoulder, one coming out of him from the top and one coming out of his right shoulder. And they also put a halo above him. So it was like he had two wings coming out of him, one from either side too, like he was an angel or an archangel or an antichrist with these feathers designed out of lines. Then there was a halo. Now the halo was made out of the United Nations Sustainable Development gold colors. So it was created out of these colors. Now you can easily pull this one up, but here's where it gets interesting. The three ostrich feathers that were created out of lines, if you count the three feathers, the lines at the top, each feather adds up to six so you've got three feathers you've got six six and six again a very precise encoding of the number six 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 now interestingly across the stage they had lots of smaller sized ostrich feathers so they had this big logo in front of him which like i said had this halo and it had these three ostrich feathers all with six lines, six, six, six across him, creating this kind of Lucifer symbolic representation, which we're going to come back to later. And then across the stage, there was lots of mini versions of that same ostrich feather logo. And there was 66 of those across the stage. So there you go. It's not an accident. This is something that has been consciously done throughout his life. Now, similarly... The next very important encoding that i'd like to mention relates directly to the coronation which we're going to be talking about extensively in part two because this is just the start of it but it's important to understand that the coronation itself took place precisely six months six weeks and six days after the funeral of queen elizabeth ii six months six weeks and six days again very precise encoding relating to Charles of 666. So clearly, this number has been applied to him. This number has been applied to him for a reason. Okay, so that's the first criteria here. So let's move on now to the bloodline of Charles himself because I think this is a key part of it too. So I've got a quote here. The odds against being born to his fate are incalculable. His ancestors include Charlemagne and Genghis Khan, El Cid, and George Washington, Shakespeare, and Count Dracula, as Sir Ian Montcrive says, His Royal Highness's breeding is the most important in the world. He is heir to the world's greatest position, that is determined solely by hereditary. In Prince Charles's veins runs the blood of emperors and kings, Russian boyars, Spanish grandees, noblemen of every European nation. Bishops and judges, knights and squires and tradesmen. Prince Charles is cousin or nephew in varying degrees of all six wives of Henry VIII. He has many descendants from the royal houses of Scotland, France, Germany, Austria, Denmark, Greece, Sweden, Norway, Spain, Portugal, Russia, and the Netherlands. Many of his ancestors died bloodily in battle or by the axe. Moreover, he descends many times over from Llewellyn the Great, Prince of Wales, and all Welsh kings and princes, by way of Hywel Da, back to Caneda and Old King Coel himself. In what was the Holy Roman Empire, he descends over and over again from Charlemagne and Crusader Frederick Barbarossa and all the other great dynasties: Habsburg and Hohenstaufen, Gelf, Hohenholzern, Bavaria, Saxony, Hessen-Baden, Meckelberg. Württemberg, Brunswick and Acholt, the Elector's Palatine and the other Wittelsbachs, plus many other historic houses such as Hohenhollen and Galen, Molt and Sickingen, Schwarzenberg and Troutsmannsdorf. Otto the Great and Philip of Hesse were his direct forefathers, Frederick the Great and Emperor Charles V were his ancestral uncles. In Italy, his forefathers include Dukes of Savoy and the Emperor Frederick II, Stupor Mundi, and the medieval kings of Sicily, and also the Orsini of Rome, Pope Nicholas III was his ancestral uncle. The Prince's Anglo-Saxon and Danish royal forefathers are among them who sprang from the Dark Age kings who incarnated the storm spirit Voden. Through the Lusignan. Crusader kings of Cyprus, titular kings of Jerusalem, Prince Charles descends a millennium further back from King Tiridates, the great, the first Christian monarch of all, under whom Armenia was converted in AD 314, before even Rome itself. And thus, from the divine Parthian imperial house of Arsaces 247 bc which reigned over persia and babylonia and was at the time the mightiest dynasty in all the world okay so clearly what we're talking about here everyone is somebody who in all likelihood has the most powerful and unique elite bloodline in human history and this is just the beginning this is just the beginning there's actually more to add to that But clearly we're talking about one of the most rare bloodlines in human history. And if what we are being told is to be believed, and I think most of it, at least by my own calculations, is true, because we know that all of these families consolidated themselves time and time again... In fact, their entire goal was to consolidate wealth and power through the bloodlines. So it was to just keep making those bloodlines stronger and stronger and stronger by marrying into other elite bloodlines to consolidate themselves. So, for example, Queen Elizabeth, who was married, as we know, to Prince Philip, the man who wanted to come back as a deadly virus to kill us all, well, she shared with him the great-great-grandmother. So they had the same family. That's how it works. Now, I guess where things become more interesting in relation to revelations and the prophesied Antichrist, as well as the idea of Charles ushering in the one-world religion phase as being the Trojan horse to get people to accept either him as this supposed embodiment of some kind of divine lineage, well, what's more important for that is this idea of him coming from this divine bloodline, not just for one religion, but for multiple religions. So, remember, the Antichrist, we could say, somebody who's prophesied to have links to divine blood. Now, Charles is supposedly of the Holy Grail bloodline, which, if it is to be believed, is the bloodline of Merovingian kings, which he certainly is from, but if the Grail story is to be believed, that means that he descends from Jesus Christ himself because the idea was that Jesus did not die on the cross, that he was taken down from the cross, he was hidden in the cave, and he survived. His wounds would tread and he survived and he went on to have children with Mary Magdalene. Now, the Merovingian kings of Europe, they actually followed that story and said, yes, we are direct descendants from Christ. Now, whether that's true or not, I guess it doesn't matter. We're talking here about the symbolism of it all. And I've got a quote here. As the Antichrist must be, Prince Charles is a prince of Roman ancestry. See Daniel 9, 26 to 27. Yet while Holden notes that the prince descends from crusader kings of Cyprus and titular kings of Jerusalem, he also curiously neglects to mention the prince's apparent claims to Davidic descent as well. Not only through the Merovingians, but also through other non-Merovingian royalty in the lineage of his mother, Queen Elizabeth II. As shown later, the prince also supposedly descends from Muhammad, Islam's false prophet and founder. So here's what gets really interesting. So King Charles, or Prince Charles as he used to be, can also claim to be the direct descent of King David through his mother, Queen Elizabeth. Now... If you look at Queen Elizabeth's lineage, it's very clear that this is true, or at least the story is true. They've got the story to say that that is true. Whether it is actually true, I don't know. I wasn't around. But they claim this, and it has been claimed for many years. And as we get to the ceremony part, I'm going to blow you away with just how much symbolism was there to show this, to show that they are the heir to the throne of David, and therefore King Charles is the saviour for the Jewish people. He would be that because he is from the bloodline of David. And it says here, Queen Elizabeth II's lineage, according to the Anglo-Israelites, the queen descends from King David and Judah through Solomon, Josiah, Zedekiah, and a woman named Tetefi. The queen's lineage published in 1977 as the illustrious lineage of the Royal House of Britain not only concurs but depicts her royal household as the House of David, the royal line. Indeed, in November 1985, the then-president Ronald Reagan met at the White House with Prince Charles and his wife Diana, whom the president referred to as Princess David. Of even greater interest is the fact that in May 1996, Israel's Channel 2 television noted in a widely viewed program that Prince Charles is connected to Israel by his supposed Davidic descent. The prince is currently very popular in Israel. Now remember this book was written about 30 years ago, so this has only progressed since then. Wow, okay, so these are all bombshell things, but they're all going to make complete sense as we go through this story, particularly once we get to the ceremony part. But we have to make some extremely important distinctions here, listeners, because not only are these people claiming that Charles is descended from Jesus Christ, if in fact you are going to go with the conspiracy that he didn't die on the cross, which I don't, but if you do do that, then that is what they're going with. They're saying that he descends from Christ, he has the Christ bloodline. But also, as you've just heard, he descends... From King David as well, which makes him eligible to be the heir to the throne of Israel and ruler over the Jews. And of course, that would enable him to maybe broker a peace deal in Palestine and rebuild the temple, which is absolutely crucial to the Antichrist story. But not just that, King Charles was also revealed to be a direct descendant of the prophet Muhammad. So now you get into understand why this is so important why he is so important for bringing about this united one world religion and bringing about this avatar so like i said there was this bbc program and Beck's peerage also who's a genealogical guide to royal ancestry harold brooks baker of Beck's peerage he said that the british royal family is directly descended from muhammad through the arab kings of seville who ruled an Islamic caliphate in Spain after the death of Muhammad and after carefully tracing King Charles ancestry it was determined that he is the 43rd great grandson of the prophet Muhammad. Now Charles himself is extremely proud of this fact it's not something that they try and hide of course they need to have it out in the open but they don't speak about it in England they don't speak about it in England very much but Charles has spoken very highly of Islam on many occasions during his life and it would certainly certainly explain a lot it would explain a lot if you've lived in England these past few decades if you've seen what's done what has been done to the native population what has been covered up and what is happening right now where they are actually allowing and setting up events for Muslims to go into our most sacred our most sacred religious churches cathedrals and Christian sites to pray that is what is happening right now so it would certainly explain all of that why this is happening Why they are trying to root Catholicism and Christ out of Europe. So, like I said, Charles has been very proud of that. And one final piece of evidence I'd add to this is in 1996, the Grand Mufti of Cyprus, he even claimed that Charles III was secretly a Muslim. He actually said in an interview, ''Did you know that Prince Charles converted to Islam?'' ''Yes, he is a Muslim. I can't say any more, but it happened in Turkey.'' ''Oh yes, he converted all right.'' the late Nazim Al-Hakini said. Now whether that's true or not I don't know, but it certainly could be true. He could have done that to help add that string to his bow for this multi-religion future. But irrespective of that, what we have here is a man who is able to claim descendancy from the world's three major religions' spiritual teachers, their prophets, And, of course, those religions all have a prophecy of the return of a prophet, the return of a messiah, the return of their chosen one. And Prince Charles descends from every one of them. Now, in light of what we have already discussed about the mechanism the Antichrist is going to use to unite the world religions and claim to be the prophesied return of prophet or God, This is all extremely important because whether you believe the claims of bloodline or not, there is nobody else on earth who can make such claims and have all the other key elements involved beyond Charles and his head. So I'm talking all those other royal lineages. We're talking thousands and thousands of people Every single royal line on planet Earth appears to go back to Charles in one way or another. There's nobody else who has that. Similarly, there is nobody else who is in this position right now that Charles is in. Of course, what makes this even more compelling is the fact that he is the man who announced the Great Reset. He is the one who is heading what I would say is an embryonic form of a one-world religion, which is based on environmental fundamentalism. You know, he is actually the figurehead of that. He is the one who was anointed king and is sovereign of the Commonwealth, who legally owns the majority of the land in Britain, Canada, and Australia. Remember, the Antichrist, it says in the Bible, is going to rule over a substantial portion of planet earth well he already does that he already does that as the sovereign of the commonwealth now unbelievably we've already made it to an hour and i've still got another big segment to do for part one which is about the heraldry of prince charles so i'm going to do that now we're going to go into that i'm going to add it to part one and then we will continue in part two of course to uh, look at the recent ceremony which is going to be really enlightening and i think having heard part one it will all make sense what I say in part two. Okay, so in terms of heraldry, let's just explain what that is for those who don't know. It's actually, I'd say, an early form of occultism and programming. And it's imbued, heraldry is imbued with a sense of de- destiny. So heraldry is the symbols and signs that were attached to people to show who they are and what they're about. That's essentially what it is. A knights used to have them on their shields. So it would be the coat of arms that the knight had and this system of heraldry would be where you had these coat of arms and these symbols and it would represent like i said what the person was about and what the family was about and this was really really popular in the early tw- 12th century 13th century and then of course it continued on ever since and it was really popular specifically in great britain but it has now extended across all of europe as well so i've got a quote here and it says heraldry is the use of inherited coats of arms and other symbols to show personal identity and family lineage. It began in the mid-12th century CE battlefield as an easy means to identify medieval royalty and princes who were otherwise unrecognisable beneath their armour. By the 13th century CE, the practice had spread to nobles and knights who began to take pride in bearing the colours and arms of their family predecessors. Shields and tunics were particularly good places to display such images. Images like lions, eagles, crosses, shields and other geometric forms. As more and more knights employed coats of arms, they had to become more sophisticated to differentiate them between one another. And the use of heraldry even spread to institutions such as universities, guilds and towns. So it's really important to understand, everyone, that there is a deep symbolic significance amongst elite families to their coat of arms and their heraldry. This isn't something that is coincidental. It's not something that is minor. It's something that they take great pride in. And of course, for a royal family, it's even more important because they express themselves through their heraldry. This tells people who they are and what they're about. It also shows people who owns what. So they would put their signs and symbols everywhere to say, this is ours, this is ours, and if you mess with us, you're going to get in trouble. So there'd be elements on there that were aggressive. You know, it was essentially like wearing... A Facebook profile, you know, or you might say today your Instagram account. That's what it was about. It was about showing exactly who you are and what you're about. So anything that's on the coat of arms or involved with heraldry has been designed to the nth degree and it's very important to understand that. There is nothing on there by accident, there is nothing on there that hasn't been thoroughly thought over and gone through in terms of its symbolic meaning, its occult meaning, its religious symbolism Every single part of a heraldic shield or coat of arms will tell you exactly what they wanted to tell you and it will be deeply encoded within it. Heraldry employs an extensive range of specific vocabulary so that coats of arms may be precisely described in words. A blazon, the shield known as the field or ground, is divided into specific areas, such as the top, the chief, the middle, the feast, the bottom, the base, The right side of the shield is the Dexter and the left side is the Sinister. This however is inverted to somebody looking up on the shield because the right and left are from the viewpoint of somebody holding the shield from behind as in battle. The colours used in a shield are known as tinctures and have their own particular heraldic names. These colours used in medieval times were generally limited to gold or yellow, silver, Argent, red, ghouls, black, sable, green, vert, purple, purpure, green and purple were less commonly used than the others whilst in the 15th century CE mulberry or murray and orange, tene were added to the list. An alternative background to colour was fares, that is, designs which resembled the fares which were commonly used in medieval aristocratic clothing. The two most popular were ermine from the Stoat, with many small black tips and ver from the Squirrel, which was represented by various white and blue patterns. Another popular form of identity on S.H.I.E.L.D. was to use animate charges aka birds, and animals, or inanimate charges, which would be everyday objects like spears, hammers, and axes. Monsters from mythology generally only appeared on arms after the medieval period, and the description of a coat of arms had to be precise so that artists could reproduce them without a more expensive visual source. Now, you've got to remember, everyone, also the etymology of the world herald. A herald is a messenger. A messenger, somebody who proclaims important news or a harbinger who gives a sign or an indication of something to come. So when we talk about heraldry and the heraldry of Prince Charles, now King Charles, what we're talking about is a harbinger. It was there to tell us what he would become. It was to give us signs, symbols of what was going to come in the future. Now that's absolutely critical So looking at the King Charles coat of arms, and it would really help if you got this one up in front of you. I'm going to attach it to the episode also. So if you go to parallelmite.com and click on this episode, you'll be able to find the image that I'm going to put up. But I'm going to explain it to you anyways. But what we're going to essentially get at here is the revelation that Charles and his heraldry, his shield, his coat of arms encoded within it revelations and all of the prophesized beasts of revelations now this is absolutely critical because this would be the final criteria met if we can do this if we can show this is the final criteria met that he was being groomed from the very beginning by somebody to be the antichrist or to be symbolic of the antichrist okay By the age of 13, Charles was granted his own heraldic achievement or coat of arms. And at the age of 19, one year before his formal investiture as Prince of Wales, he was granted his own Welsh standard. Below, we will examine the symbols found on the Prince's official coat of arms. Now, again, this comes from Tim Cohen's book. So this is... Where I'm taking this from, I've added a few bits myself, but otherwise we're talking about stuff that was identified by somebody else, and I'm just helping you understand that. So we're going to discuss this heraldry, which, like I said in that quote, it was prepared for his investiture, so that was when he was 19 years of age, and that's really important. This was a big public ceremony where he was uh, crowned prince of Wales, so that's where he was given his um, title, he was given a sword, there was a ceremony, the queen was involved, and in. we're going to talk about that in a second. Now, I'm going to go into another quote here and it's going to help you to understand how the symbolism of Revelations is completed within the shield. As we shall see, the coat of arms belonging to Prince Charles of Wales comprises a literal graphic representation of the beast described in Psalm 22, 21, Daniel 7, 2-24 and the Apocalypse. See Revelations 12, 3, 13, 1-4. Now, just going to interject there and give you that quote from Revelations 12.3 and it says here, and there appeared another wonder in the heaven and behold a great dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. Okay, so the red dragon is absolutely obvious when it comes to Charles because if you look at his shield and his coat of arms, you can see it right there, the red dragon is on it. So if we're talking about a red dragon from Revelations, it's very obvious, it's on the shield. But you could just say, well, that's because the red dragon is symbolic of Wales. And it is, and it is. But we need to talk about that. So the red dragon, of course, in Revelations represents Satan uh, himself. That's what it represents. So the fact that it's on child's shield is interesting. It's very interesting. And what's really key too is that his investiture in 1969 is that the queen said to Charles... This dragon gives you your power, your authority, and your right to rule. So the queen actually said that to Prince Charles. It's recorded. You can listen to that clip online. Now, the reason that's so important, what she said, is because in Revelations, it also says this. The beast I saw was like a leopard with the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. So let's just remind us the precise wording of what the queen said to prince charles upon his investiture this dragon gives you your power your authority or your throne and your right to rule and your right to rule so let's just remind ourselves one more time of what revelation said the beast i saw was like a leopard with the feet of a bear the mouth of a lion and the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority you know it's almost word for word there So it's very explicit. One of the heads of the beast appeared to be mortally wounded, but the mortal wound was healed, and the whole world marveled and followed the beast. And just to explore how all of that is encoded within the heraldry also, this beast that they talk about that has the feet of a bear, the body of a leopard, and the mouth of a lion, well, if you're looking face on, so we're looking from our perspective at the shield on the left, you will see that precise beast. And in Tim's, Tim Cohen's book, it says the Dexter beast in Prince Charles' coat of arms, rather than being of the normal heraldic lion used for England, has a body like a leopard, feet like a bear and a mouth like a lion. It fully represents the Merovingian dynasty which originated and prospered historically in Germany, France and England. The Sinister Beast, so this is if we're looking at the right side uh, from our perspective, what you see there is of course the unicorn. And if you've got this image in front of you, what you'll notice is that the unicorn, which faces the Dexter Beast, it stands above the Red Dragon. It stands above it. Now it's restrained, it's got a chain around its neck and that chain goes down to the Red Dragon, so it is chained to Satan. Now, what's really interesting is if you look at the eyes. If you look at the eyes of the unicorn, in heraldry, normally, the eyes would be all black for a unicorn. That is what it looks like in heraldry. It's tradition. But this beast has something else. It has the eyes of a man. And what I mean by that, it has the whites and then the pupils. So, a man's eyes. So, going back to this quote, The beast is restrained. Means of chain. In heraldry, as well as the many ages circles today, the unicorn is said to represent the Christ. And in ancient Babylonic art, as well as the book of Daniel, it was portrayed as a beast of having a little horn. Irenaeus, Tertullian, Justinius, and others likened the horn of the unicorn to the central beam of the cross upon which Jesus was crucified. The unicorn's horn may also be compared to the spikes that were used to pierce Jesus. Like certain Renaissance artwork, ancient Babylon's Ishtar Gate incorporates pictures of lions, dragons, and unicorns. So this is all really, really important stuff. This is extremely symbolic. You can see that we've got the beast of Revelation 13 too which was the beast that had the body of a leopard, the feet of a bear, and the mouth of a lion. That beast is there. It's the one on the left side as you're looking there at it. And of course, the other really important book when it comes to end times is Daniel. And in Daniel 7 8, he talks about this horned beast and the end times. And he says, I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another little horn before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Now, if we go back to the image, what do you see with the unicorn? Well, you see that he has the eyes of a man. Similarly, there are the three plucked up horns around its neck and it's also around the at, um, the neck of the lion as well now remember these symbols are also on the eldest son which is prince william they are also on his insignia as well so it could be that william is going to be the one who becomes the person who fulfills that prophecy remember the unicorn is also chained it's got a chain leading down to the beast to the um to satan and this echoes ezekiel seven twenty three where he describes also end times. So this links the Old and New Testament, to it links it all to Revelations, and Ezekiel says, Prepare chains, for the land is full of bloodshed, and the city is full of violence. Well, that's quite horrifying, but it certainly would echo what we're seeing in the real world today. We are moving towards a period just like that. It also reflects the prophecy of Revelation 6, in which it says... When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and before me there was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. Now, symbolism of death is very important, and I want you to remember this verse also for when we get to part two, if you remember, and you're going to listen to that, remember this verse too, because it's extremely important. This is the... Um, the verse Revelation 6 onwards where it talks about the pale horse and the rider named death because that's a motif that reappears but going back to the symbolism on child's shield you can see the unicorn of course is white it's the pale horse. Now going back to the Revelation's quote about the beast about the um, red dragon I just want to fill that quote out because we've spoken about the red dragon but we haven't spoken about some of the other symbolism attached to that and i think this one's really going to blow your mind so let's go back to Revelation 12. now a great sign appeared in the heaven a woman clothed with the sun With the moon under her feet and on her head, a garland of 12 stars. Then, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in the heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, if we go to the seven diadems mentioned there, that is seven crowns. A diadem is a crown. And if you go back to Prince Charles' coat of arms, what do you see? You can count seven crowns, and I'll tell you exactly where they're located. So you've got one on the very top, so there's a lion right on the peak of it, and that is what we call the crest. It's right at the very top, and there's a lion with a crown on. Then you can see there is a crown on the lion also. So the lion on the left has a crown. There is a crown central as well. So if you go from the lion to the right, you'll see another crown. That's the third. If you go to the unicorn, there is a Merovingian crown around its neck. So just above where the three horns that were plucked out by the root is, there's another crown. That makes four. So now we're on our fourth crown. If you go to the bottom, you can see on the left side, there's the three ostrich feathers. That makes five. There's a crown in there. Go to the center, you can see six. There's one right in the center. And if you go up from there to the very center of the shield, so we're going to the tincture, to the very center, you can see there is the seventh crown right in the center. That is seven crowns. And again, that fulfills the Revelation's prophecy, which I just um, laid out to you of seven crowns or seven diadems, as revealed in Revelations 12. Now, in Revelations 17, verse 10, we find out more about these seven crowns when it tells us, This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. But when he does come, He must remain for only a little while. The beast that was and now is not is the eighth king who belongs to the other seven and is going into destruction. Okay, so this is very cryptic. It begins by saying that this calls for a mind of wisdom. So the Bible here or the Holy Spirit as... Christians believe he's revealing to us here that this is some kind of puzzle for us to solve and he says that the seven heads are actually seven mountains on which a woman sits now the woman can represent numerous things it can represent the church sometimes the church is spoken of biblically as a woman or it can also represent a city now here's where it gets very interesting because if you know your history you'll know that Rome was built on seven hills This is something that is very well known. In fact, it was sometimes called Septiceps, the seven-hilled city. And it says that there are seven kings, five are fallen, one is... Remember when this was written? So there was a sixth king there. Then there was going to be the seventh, that would make the seventh king. And then it tells us this bit, which is very cryptic. It says, the beast that was and now is not is an eighth king who belongs to the other seven and is going into destruction. It's clearly referring to two separate things. It's talking about Rome, the city that sits on seven mountains. And it says the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And the woman represents Rome. And yet we're also talking about seven kings. So we're talking about seven kings of Rome because the seven heads sit upon the seven mountains. And we know there were seven Charleses who ruled the Holy Roman Empire. Seven kings, seven Charleses. And what it says here is that the eighth king... He's not there yet, but it says he belongs to the other seven and is going into destruction. So this is the one that has yet to come. So now with King Charles being crowned, the seven kings all had the name Charles, meaning that our new King Charles will be the eighth. So that solves the puzzle. That makes him both the eighth whilst also being one of the seven. He belongs to the other seven. The holy Roman Empire kings that were all called Charles, but he had yet to come. Well, now he is here. That's the riddle solved and the prophecy fulfilled. Now, the final thing that I wanted to add to this is Ic Dien. That is the motto on Charles's heraldry. And Ic Dien is Latin for I serve. I serve. And it's important to realise that the word serve is right under the red beast. So that's the final piece of that one. So I'm going to end part one just with a quote from an essay by Linda Kimball where she describes our current predicament. And she says the following, The Greek atomist Epicurus is the father of contemporary scientific materialism. The principal tenant of atomism teaches that the world was not created by any deity or with any design, but came about by a chance movement of physical atoms of various sizes and magnitude that cemented together and so formed the world. The world and everything in it were not created, but instead were the accidental emergent or evolved products of a great cosmic event, an exploding cosmic egg or Big Bang, that spontaneously generated animated physical matter pregnant with life from nothing. This way of thinking excludes everything unseen, such as the human soul, mind, angels, and demons, and holds that humans are an aggregate of physical matter in motion in a mind form and the human consciousness of active principle of grey matter. This ancient pagan way of thinking forms the basis of the materialist psychology of Sigmund Freud. Darwin's evolutionary conception, modern evolutionary biology, secular humanism and secular transhumanism, Marxist quasi-pantheist and animist dialectical materialism, and John Dewey, co-author of the 1993 Humanist Manifesto and father of progressive education, a leading figure... In the dumbing down of American schools and the transition of American society, and I would say Western society entirely, away from its biblical founding heritage in favour of a pagan humanism. He said, there is no God and no soul, hence there are no needs for the props of traditional religion. With dogma and creed excluded, then immutable, unchangeable truth is also dead and buried. There is no room for fixed natural law or permanent moral absolutes, we, of course, say that we do not believe in God and eternal morality. That is moral that serves the destruction of the old society. Everything is moral which is necessary for the annihilation of the old exploiting social order and for the uniting of the pro- Now that quote's going to make a lot more sense in part two where we're going to go, like I said, much deeper into the ceremony itself. It's occult symbolism, the pagan element to it, which is absolutely critical and you'll find out why. We're also going to be looking at the hidden astrology that has permeated Charles' entire life. Yes, his whole life has been prepared and shifted around through astrology, including this ceremony. We will also be considering the revealing of the one world religion along with a whole host of other disturbing elements that could be tied into it such as transhumanism the one world currency and economic system and much, much more. So that's it from me for part one. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you did and you would like to support my work, then please head over to parallelmic.com where you'll be able to register and listen to part two of this and all other episodes members. I will see you over there. But for everyone else, that's it for part one. And I will sign off by wishing you all health, happiness, and a strong spirit. Thanks everyone, and I'll see you in the next one. what you are basically, deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence